Hello and welcome to episode number 216 of the Armin Show podcast. If you have not subscribed to iTunes, Google Play, on the website, whatever app you use, it is available. Now on this episode, we have a guest, a wonderful guest, an author, a professor, author of Infinite Powers, How Calculus Reveals the Secrets of the Universe, recent book that has come out, Professor Stephen Strogatz. Welcome to the show. Hi Armin, thanks a lot for having me on. This is wonderful. Did I pronounce that right, by the way, Strogatz? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds perfect. Sounds like you you know uh, the people from Moldova. Yes. Is that where that is from? <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing your name is Armenian, but is that right? Mm-hmm. It is Persian-Armenian. Oh, Persian-Armenian. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. These My, my ancestors were um, Jews in the part of the world that's now called Moldova. Oh, interesting. I don't know anybody from Moldova. Where is that, by the way? Well, it's um, near Romania. It's between Romania and Russia and Ukraine around there. Oh, cool. That is nice. Speaking of your name, actually, I noticed that uh, I realized what drew me to your book kind of other than the book was also I've seen like citations where I feel like I saw your name over the years. So it's kind of interesting. I guarantee I've seen that name. So that's okay, cool. yeah, it is a somewhat distinctive name. It causes some problems from time to time because it looks intimidating with the strange consonants in it. But mm-hmm. just two syllables, Stroh and Gats. Right. This is wonderful. Now, I would like to mention that Professor Strogatz is the Jacob Gold Sherman Professor of Applied Mathematics at Cornell University. And then I looked at your background. I always like to discuss along the way what was uh, gained at each step. So you had graduated from Princeton in 1980 in the category of mathematics. What do you remember from Princeton? Was there any professors or any things that stood out? Well, yeah, (laughs) many things. Um, I suppose what stood out was how um, difficult it was for me to do math when I first got there. Oh. I was really, yeah, really intimidated by this course that I was placed in as a freshman, which was meant to be for kids who in high school thought they were pretty good in math and had a good record. And so mm-hmm. it was like some kind of whiz kid course. But I think really what the point of it was is that a lot of these students think they're going to be math majors and they need to be taught a lesson immediately that being good in math in high school is not the same as being, you know, a professional mathematician. Right. So I, I have to say I'm very resentful of that course because it was um, taught by one of the worst teachers in the department. Um, it was really unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And um, now some of the kids did fine and, and were able to get it, but I really felt lost. And I started to understand how when people have math phobia, what it must feel like for them, because I started to get really turned off myself. I like your... That was my freshman year. I'm sorry. I mean, that was just my first year. But, of course, things did improve. I had a much better teacher my sophomore year, and then I started liking math again. And then at some point, my parents felt like, what can you ever do with math? There's nothing. You know, you should be a doctor. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of pressure to, you know, think about doing the pre-med courses. And so I did that in my junior year. And that helped me get interested in biology. So it was not a waste of time. I, I mean, to this day, I still like applying math to biology. And so that started in that parental concern about the uselessness of math. (laughs) But I eventually found I couldn't really live without it. And so in my senior year, we all had to do a senior thesis, and and I chose a topic where I could apply math to the biology I was interested in, which was about DNA and its interesting double helical shape. And so I, I wrote a thesis about the geometry of twisted 
so-called supercoiled DNA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were a lot of other things along the way, girlfriends that didn't work out or that did for a while. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe we could skip all of that stuff. Right. That's pretty good, though. There's, that's the reality. There's, there's multiple elements at play along the way. And sometimes we only speak about one category because that fits that category. But there's other tracks that at the same time we as people have to balance or we manage. Sure. Yeah, definitely. I like that you mentioned the directness about that professor because sometimes I've had uh, I've tutored students in math and I've noticed that sometimes if they didn't have a good experience at some time, 10 years later, that led to them just saying, I'm not good at math. Not, yeah. not, not saying they would have been the best, but... Uh, I believe it has an impact on how they feel about themselves just based on early scenarios. And then you saw that and you're like, but it wasn't good. And then you went on to something, uh, professors that were better. Yeah, I think it did give me a lot of empathy that has been useful to me as a teacher now that I've become a a math professor, that when I see students um, struggling or feeling discouraged, I... I, it's not hard for me to remember what that felt like. It's it's still pretty vivid to me. I mean, I used to get nervous before tests. And it's it's funny when I look back on it, how helpless I was, that it didn't occur to me I could look at a different book. I could have switched into right. a different section. I mean, there were many things I could have done. I didn't do any of them. Oh, that's a great point. I could almost do a whole episode on that concept of uh, seeing if you can broaden your mind at the current moment because it's difficult, and anybody that looks back on 10, 15, 20 years ago, they wonder, like, how did I not see this, 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 and this? <laughs> but at the time, you didn't see this, this, and this. I definitely did not. <laughs> uh-huh. It's very interesting, the expanding yeah. of the mind. That's true. Um, and then you continued forward. You went to Trinity College in Cambridge, and then you did your doctoral work in applied math at Harvard. Uh, what recollections do you have from that time period? Well, the the going to England was a very eye-opening experience. I had never lived outside the United States before. Mm -hmm. And I came to understand my own country better by not living in it for a while and also got a chance to see some of the rest of the world and traveled a little bit to places like the Canary Islands or um, Austria and Italy. And, um, you know, I mean, I just started to Germany. I mean, it was was, – that made me less, much less parochial. But, mm-hmm. I mean, like one of the high points for me was I played tennis for my college tennis team, not because I was such a good tennis player, but just because the attitude toward sports in England was much more low-key. Like you didn't need to be a great athlete to be to, to have fun playing sports, and people just did that. And, and this really surprised mm-hmm. me that when we would play other teams from other colleges, after one set of tennis, we would stop and go drink. There would be there would be alcoholic drinks, shandy, a nice British drink like lemonade and beer, and and you would drink uh, and get a little drunk with the opponent. It was just very relaxed. Right. And we would go out and finish the game. You would never do that in the U.S. <laughs> right. That's true. A different mindset. <laughs> it was a very different mindset. That sports real. I mean, the sportsmanship was very high caliber and very nice, but. But I also found that there was a surprising amount of racism that I – or I don't know if racism would be exactly the word. Mm-hmm. But at the time I was there, England was getting into a war with um, Argentina oh. over what, what are called the Falkland Islands, which um, were disputed territory off the coast of Argentina. And England had oh. people there, and they felt it was their island. But Argentina said, it's right here. It's our island. And so they actually went to war, and, and England sent its ships down there. And But the point was that – I heard English people talking in such 
um, what struck me as really gross ways about all Hispanic people. Oh. You know, and maybe maybe it's because I never lived in a country that was at war, but I was surprised at the um, oh yeah the chauvinism. Yeah. Right. It turns into like a them, those, the, that, that. Oh, yeah. Group. Right. That makes sense. It's good to see that firsthand. Um, and then after that period, uh, you went to Harvard and then you went to the National Science Foundation to do a postdoc at Harvard and Boston University. What's it like at the National Science Foundation? Oh, yeah. Maybe that was a little um, unclear. What, what that was was that the National Science Foundation gave me mm-hmm. money pursue a postdoc, but I didn't actually go to oh, the National okay. Science Foundation. Yeah, I was in Boston at, at Harvard and Boston University for mm-hmm. that. Oh, okay. And yeah, it was a very developmentally important time. I started to do do research on math for the first time. And, you know, I mean, in my PhD, I worked mostly on sleep research, which mm-hmm. many people are interested in since we all sleep and it's a lot of people have cycles. trouble with their sleep. Yeah, circadian rhythms. Um, disruption of circadian rhythms when people work on the night shift or when they have jet lag or even if they're a teenager and they want to stay up late and wake up late and their parents make them get up early to go to school. Mm-hmm. You know, those all those kinds of things have interesting biological and even mathematical properties that, that we were able to get at by, I say we because I was working with doctors who would do experiments on people by having them live alone in a room with no windows and no clocks and they didn't know what time it was for weeks or months at a time mm-hmm. and then they would do measurements on them in this strange time isolated condition mm-hmm. i've looked at a couple of papers before not recently but uh related to that it's interesting to see what the brain comes up with as this is what a day is how do right. i respond to this Right, right, right. Exactly. We don't, I mean, to some extent, we have the 24-hour world built into our biology, right. but it's perfect. And we tend to stay up a little bit later and later each day. And sometimes the people will get on a, a 30-hour day or even in some extreme cases, 40 hours or 45 hours, which is amazing. They're they're up for two consecutive days and oh. they don't feel it. And they still only eat three times a day, except now that means three times every two days. <laughs> so they start losing weight and it it doesn't feel like dieting because they don't perceive it as – I mean, you're only eating half as much. I mean, right. that's very, very weird. It's probably the easiest diet ever invented. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, after – I like, the, by the way, the, the theme of waves across a lot of your research, which is – I think that's kind of cool. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, cycles and rhythms, waves, that's, that does seem to be a theme. I noticed that. Um, and then you taught in the Department of Math at MIT, and then you joined Cornell faculty in 1994. And then uh, how have you liked being at Cornell as a faculty Good. member? Yeah, great. Been here now. It's 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a beautiful place for people who haven't visited. It's it's in the country, upstate New York. It's five hours north of New York City. Um, lots of waterfalls and gorges and outdoor it's it's isolated it's not really close to anything it takes about four hours to drive to any big city Mm -hmm. so we're in the middle of nowhere but we like to say we're centrally isolated (laughs) that's a pretty cool term (laughs) yeah it's nice it's a great place it's a big university lots of very fine scholars in all different disciplines good students Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah i find it it leads to a balanced life with walking my dog playing tennis doing my work it's got pretty hard winters. Some mm-hmm. people 
can't take that, but I, I don't find I really mind it. Mm-hmm. Now, the your new book it has a wonderful plethora of examples of calculus being applied. I also looked at some of your uh, research because I really like looking at research articles sometimes. And first I want to point out, Professor Strogatz has the sixth most cited physics paper of all time, 63rd <laughs> most cited research article of all time, and it's about small world networks. It was in 1998 in Nature. I looked at it, and it's neat. It connects uh, C. elegans neural network to the power grid of the western u.s to the a graph of film actors i feel like there's multiple other examples that would have this element of small world networks what should people know about small world networks and is this related to like tribes like a long time ago why people would uh group up in tribes or is that separate i don't know well maybe so i mean the main thing i guess i would emphasize is is just what is the phenomenon that mm-hmm. it's a, we call it small world because of the experience that people have when they're on an airplane or at a cocktail party and they start talking to a stranger and then mm-hmm. they get, as they start to get into the discussion, they realize that they know somebody in common or they know somebody who went to some summer camp that their sister went to mm-hmm. or, you know, that kind of thing. We find these chains of connections through acquaintances that always surprise us. And then we end up saying, gee, it's a small world. And mm-hmm. so that's the effect. And, and what's puzzling about it is that each of us feel like we only know you know, a hundred or a thousand people on something on that order of magnitude. Mm-hmm. And that's a very tiny fraction of the seven or eight, I guess it's about seven billion people in the whole world. Right. Um, how, how can it be that we have this small world experience so much? Um, another thing that people will remember is this idea of six degrees of separation. Mm-hmm. You know, the claim that we can all connect to each other on the planet through just I know someone who knows someone who knows someone and and in a chain of six people, you could get any from any person to any other person. Mm -hmm. Uh, So again, it's very mysterious. How could the world be that small? And okay. So we, my student Duncan Watts and I tried to work out some of the math that makes that possible by thinking about what, what would the world have to be like for it to have that, that property? Mm -hmm. I mean, what you thought of it as a network of points connected by lines, what would the network have to be like? And in thinking about it, we um, started to realize that this was much more prevalent than just networks of people that, as you say, the network of, of, of the nervous system of mm-hmm. cells connected by synapses or networks in um, the power grid of power plants connected by high voltage transmission lines, all kinds of networks in the world we discovered had this same kind of small world property that it was not just about people, but it was a very universal feature of real world networks. And so that was that was the first big part of the story. But the, the second big part was it makes a difference because if anything is propagating on the network or if information is traveling, then it gets from point to point much, much faster in a small world than it would in some other kind of network. Mm-hmm. So take, for instance, the case of um, HIV, you know, back in the days when AIDS was a, a very scary epidemic that mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's still quite scary, but now we have right. drug therapy that makes it more of a chronic illness than a death sentence. But it's still, um, you know, back then we used to say things like if you sleep someone, you're not just sleeping with them. You also sleep with everyone that they've ever slept with and mm-hmm. everyone that that person has ever slept with. That's the idea that the, that viruses or other pathogens traveling on small world networks put you very close to to disease much more than you realize. Mm-hmm. Right. I looked at that. It said uh, 
They have faster speed, power, and synchronizing than non-small world. I liked it because you had the graph of a small world network, then you had completely random, uh, regular, unlinked, and then, I mean, random with all kinds of links, and then regular, which is like one next to the next person, like just the person knows a person. And then, as with most things in life, it's a combination that is the most efficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that concept. It is. It, it In retrospect, it seems kind of obvious, but that's often how things work. You right. know, that, like, why didn't anyone notice this? And people had certainly found aspects of the puzzle before. For instance, there is a sociologist named Mark Granovetter, who's a professor at Stanford now, mm-hmm. who asked people, how did they find the job that they're in? And pe- he expected that people would say, well, a friend told me about the job opening. But that, that is not actually what people say. They say... Um, Oh, I heard about it from somebody. And then Granovetter would say, oh, is it a friend of yours? And the person would always say, no, not actually a friend. It's more like an acquaintance. Mm-hmm. That people would not find about jobs through their close circle of contacts. It's more from weaker connections right. to a more distant circle of acquaintances. That's how you get – and you can see why, that your own circle, your right. tight circle, has all the same information you have. Mm-hmm. It's your acquaintances that connect you to the larger universe. Uh-huh. And so those are also, we found, those weak ties, those long-range connections are are responsible for making the world small. This point is very relevant to me. I'm very uh, sociable uh, in my city area or whatnot. And so I take account of all these details. And I see that as like you can only connect to a distance because the people who are around you are the people around you. You already have the same mindset. Yep. So. Uh, reaching out, I see a very high value in it. Uh, that yeah, way. yeah, yeah. It's it's worth keeping in mind that these don't have to be intimate friends. They don't have to be someone who would, like, say, lend you money or let you borrow their car. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be that. The, these people can still be very valuable to you. Actually, so Granovetter had a clever title for his paper making this point. He called it The Strength of Weak Ties. Mm. And it's it's very memorable. It's actually also, I think, one of the top 100 most cited scientific papers of all time. Wow. It's on a very closely connected theme to our, our work, too. And, and it came before our work. That is cool. I'm going to take a look at that, the strength of weak ties. Yeah, yeah. He could be an interesting guest to have. Oh, that's not bad. I mean, I don't know. You, of course, you have your own ideas. No, that's a good point. Podcasts, but I appreciate he's a, it. He's an interesting guy. Yeah, I think he could be an interesting person to talk to. I will, I will write that down. Also, oh, okay. <laughs> also, I want to point out, I liked in the article that uh, you talked about at the end of it, uh, increased number of shortcuts when you have a small world network uh, in a pr- prisoner's dilemma, it removes the cooperative response. I thought about like, uh, let's say traffic cutting off people at like a freeway entrance. Uh, there's this kind of like a shortcut. And since we have a small world network in, uh, let's say, Los Angeles, sort of like that, then there's no cooperation and a lot of people want to cut in because they're not going to be penalized for such. So I thought uh-huh. about that. Okay. I try to see linkages there. So yeah, that, that's good. That, uh, I should say that's probably one of the aspects of the paper that helped it become as widely um, cited as it is, that people can see how it relates to whatever they're interested in. So like you just brought up the case of traffic and mm-hmm. game theory. There were people in neuroscience who saw it as being about what they think about and then mm-hmm. people in ecology or um, even business, you know, business organizations and structure of um, companies and Mm-hmm. markets anyway so it has because networks are everywhere nowadays and even more so back then we wrote it 20 years ago but right. 
now with the rise of social media and all that, of course, the world is much more, much more networked than it ever was. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the book, wonderful, and it goes into, I, I like the book because it is a lot of teaching. It's sort of almost like calculus teaching in a way, and then examples of it as well. So that's a nice combination. One part you were talking about, um, this part stood out to me, cubing numbers near two, and then <laughs> if you cube two, it's eighth, and if you cube 2.01, I believe, or 001, you get 8.012006001. It's like in three parts, which I've noticed that before, and I kind of see patterns in multiplying. Did you always see these kinds of mathematical patterns when you were doing math? <laughs> I, I suppose so. Yeah, I'm, as a kid, I liked fooling around with numbers in that way that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't like math above everything else. I liked all of school. I liked my English classes and science and everything else. But, but yeah, I, I definitely like numbers. And, and my uh, brother, I had an older brother who was 12 years older. And so I would sometimes read his books that he would leave lying around the house. I remember picking up an algebra book one time when I was little and getting interested in square roots and just random stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I, I always have liked it. Um, mm-hmm. I also like the challenge of trying to solve puzzles, and I don't mind if they're hard. I, I don't – it feels fine to be stuck for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't get really frustrated. I figure I can do it if I keep trying. I'm not fast. My wife loves to teach me about – uh, sorry, tease me <laughs> about how slow I am, and I am very slow. But – um, but I'm determined. <laughs> it's like it's like the book Thinking Fast and Slow, the slow but with depth uh, is the maybe. <laughs> without that kind of thinking, I don't think we get anywhere as a society. So that's a nice feature. Yeah, it's ponderous though for the people around me. <laughs> right. <laughs> my kids and my wife was like, Dad, you know, hurry up, man, let's go. Right. It takes <laughs> it takes a certain amount of patience. I would say it's almost uh, exactly linked the amount of patience for that kind of thought. Uh, is the height that someone can get in that category as far as how far they get. Yeah, they're both valuable, though, as, of course, that book, Thinking Fast and Slow, points out that the gut reactions Mm -hmm. when you're thinking fast, um, of course, those are really important for how we size up other people, how we judge a situation, whether it's dangerous or Mm -hmm. has good opportunities for us. So, yeah, you, you can do certain things by just very instinctive reactions, but they can also lead you astray. And having a little bit deeper cognitive thought is essential for certain types of problems. And and that's what math, I mean, actually people might think math is all about the slow kind of deliberate thinking, but it's, we've used both. We do use intuition and quick, fast thinking, and then we check it with the slower, more deliberate type. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would think about it that way. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, so like that's, and that's a thing that I think a lot of teachers miss. They, they think math is very black and white and exact and, it is that, but that's often the end game. Mm-hmm. The opening game is um, kind of rough and intuitive and a little bit loose and involves guesswork. And that's an appealing thing for many people. And so it, they should use all sides of their brain when doing math, the fast and the slow. Right. It's sort of like a brainstorm, do all kinds of thought, fast pace to figure out uh, key concepts that are slowly pieced together. Once the key concepts are there, uh, That's right. They can be used to quickly solve things. I think so, and it's true for any problem solving. It's much bigger than math. It's uh, um, you know, if you're starting a business or you're trying to write a novel or poem or whatever, it's usually good to, like you say, brainstorm at the beginning, make a mess, mm-hmm. get a lot of ideas in play, and then 
you got to generate all kinds of possibilities before you start whittling them down with mm-hmm. the more careful, critical thought. That's why it kind of burns me up when I hear people going on about critical thinking, <laughs> you know, to teach critical thinking. Fine, critical thinking is good. That's half the story. Mm-hmm. The other half is creative thinking, you know, generating some ideas before you criticize them. Right. Oh, that's a good point. That's not mentioned. Right. You can't no. be critical until you've put out a bunch of thoughts, right. ideas, how things work. And I think it's because a lot of the people who are going on drone <laughs> on about critical thinking are not actually creative people themselves. Ooh, and they don't right. they never really had any ideas, so they don't even know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. You you gotta produce ideas. And I mean there's a great quote from Linus Pauling, one of the great scientists. Mm-hmm. He actually won two Nobel Prizes. Um, one in chemistry and one in peace, actually, for helping with nuclear disarmament with the test ban treaty. But people may know his name because he pushed the idea that vitamin C would help cure common (laughs) cold and many other types of diseases, which I'm not so sure if that's true. But but anyway, he was Mm -hmm. a great chemist. And somebody asked him one time, uh, Professor Pauling, how do you have so many great ideas? And he said, well, that's that's the secret. You have to first have a lot of ideas and then you have to have a filter for getting rid of the bad ones. Right. That's a great point. The filter is the the after effect, but yeah. if you don't have ideas, then you have nothing to filter. Right. That's a great point. I look at these things in detail, which is not that different from the way you describe calculus at the beginning of the book. It cuts and rebuilds, so it's deconstruction and then reconstruction. Uh, you have a lot of things. You're deconstructed into this thought, this concept, this, and then you have to reconstruct. But this is sort of different. I'm trying to just make an analogy, but well, it is. It is there. Yeah, right. So if, if people have taken calculus, or even if not, they may have heard this, these words, derivatives and integrals, mm-hmm. or you know, and and the derivative is a kind of operation of slicing a problem into tiny bits, actually infinitesimally tiny, mm-hmm. and infinitely many of them, um, which might sound like you're making trouble for yourself, but but that was a secret to how calculus succeeded in solving important problems, first in geometry, mm-hmm. later in how things move on the earth or in in the solar system. And then eventually, calculus was used to solve anything that could change continuously, whether it was populations going up and down or traffic flowing on a highway or blood flowing in an artery or you know electricity and magnetism that gave us the wireless communication that we're now using to talk to each other over a whole continent, you and I. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these things are the fruits of this idea of chopping problems into little bits and then recombining them, differentiating them first and then integrating them back into the whole. So, yeah, in Infinite Powers, I'm trying to explain this process of, of using infinity strategically to solve problems that have been some of the most important in the history of humanity. This is true. And also you mentioned like GPS that we use for our phones relies on uh, time differences to determine your location. I found that to be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. One part later, uh, related to infection, you had mentioned that I thought this was, I, I, I thought about this sort of, but I never, the numbers was interesting when you have a disease and uh, modeling it with exponential decay and then showing that you would find out that uh, a billion virus particles were cleared per day that were made that day and then it would amp ramp up to some let's say five billion so a person might seem healthy but they had the condition and so they'd have five billion virus particles cleared out per day and then at some point it would pass how much their immune response could be i found that super interesting it's amazing yeah i mean what you're describing there is our 
current understanding of what happens to a person who has been infected with HIV, mm-hmm. um, just to remind people, I mean, someone who gets HIV will feel sick right away for a few weeks. And it usually they describe it as a kind of feeling like the flu with headaches and fever and stuff. But then strangely, they seem to get better after a few weeks. And then they don't really show any noticeable symptoms. They might even think, oh, I just had a bad flu and now I'm okay. But actually what has happened is HIV is now in the body doing its thing, starting to destroy the immune system. But the immune system is not taking it lying down and it's busy killing HIV particles and flushing them out of the body. Mm -hmm. So that's when you speak of the billion particles a day, billion virus particles of HIV. Yeah, I mean, the the body is, is getting rid of them and yet the HIV is making new ones all the time. And so there's this unbelievably ferocious battle going on minute by minute, day after day, mm-hmm. that, that can go on for years in a stalemate with the body keeping the virus at bay until after something like usually around 10 years, if the person is untreated, their immune system will collapse and sort of get exhausted. And at that point, then they have what we call AIDS, and, and then usually will they'll die within a year or two after that. So, you know, it was this this idea of what I just described with this scenario of all this fighting going on in the body at the molecular level. We didn't know that at first. We we used to think that HIV was just lying dormant in the body like it was hiding out for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And that's what was going on. But now we and, and that was an, an important misunderstanding because it meant that we would treat HIV with the available drugs in a certain way. Um, we'd only give the drugs at the very end so that the person wouldn't develop resistance to them if you gave them too early. Mm-hmm. Whereas now we understand, no, no, you have to give whatever medicine you can as soon as possible to help protect the immune system for this long fight that it's going to have. Right. I think about this same concept. I always relate it to parts of life, but two things come up. One of them is um, how people have the response where when something changes, it signifies something bigger that was underlying because like the battle was going on it was hidden for so long same like if someone hides uh something they uh didn't mention for a long time a truth or a medical condition or something for a long time there's a period of benign movement because nothing is being seen it's being hidden underneath or in this case the body's battling but by the point that you finally see something or a sign of weakness or the little untruths come out or there's other examples then it's like uh people suddenly pay attention because oh that means that this was building most likely it doesn't just come from nowhere very interesting yeah that's a nice analogy it's true in our daily lives we often do want to sweep things under the rug or just ignore them as long as we can Mm -hmm. and then it may be too late by the time we can't ignore them anymore so yeah of course climate change is the one right now that's on many people's minds you know we could be doing things and we could have been doing things for the past 20 years mm-hmm. or more that would have been fairly easy to do and as we keep just denying that this is a reality as i'm sure some of your listeners probably still will be denying it mm-hmm. um it's like, just going to get harder and harder when we eventually have to deal with it right like reusable plastic uh, if people you know used bags that they got small things in again or there's a hundred different little things that make a key difference mm-hmm. that's true yeah when you notice something suddenly that's when and i think that's why we're slightly attuned to changes uh we notice them so clearly and then we ignore the background that's the same kind of um 
so that's a relevant point. One other article you had written about I wanted to mention, I don't know if this was in the book, but talking about the minimum fleet for cars, the minimum fleet that's required, I found this to be interesting because soon we have uh, automation and self-driving cars, and then maybe they'll use that exact kind of uh, algorithm, whatever's developed, <laughs> to put the minimum amount of cars out on the road. What, yeah. What comes up when you think about that concept? Well, yeah, it's so the question there is, suppose you had a certain number of cars, let's say it's the taxi fleet of New York City, or it could be uh, all the cars in Uber or Lyft in some city or whatever. The, the issue would be if, if you want to serve the needs of all the people who want cars for, the, say, some, some amount, a month of, or whatever, some amount of time, mm-hmm. a day, anything, um, how many cars do you really need to serve that demand? If you could schedule the cars optimally, that is, if, if you could make it so that a car would take someone where they want to go, and then the whole system is so smart that, that when somebody else wants a car, um, there will be one right nearby, and you don't have to make anybody drive way out of their way to pick people up. Mm-hmm. Like you sort of you dispatch the cars optimally, you're using them so that the drivers aren't driving around wasting time and being idle. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if you could do everything the best way that you could, how many cars would you need? Let's say how many taxis would you need to serve the demand in New York City? And we found that you could, you know, by developing an optimal algorithm using real data from that had been collected on taxis driving in, in New York. Actually, when Mayor Bloomberg was the mayor of New York, he had every car equipped with GPS in the taxi fleet. So he knew every, yeah, it was an innovative thing at the time in 2011, but he, um, the New York authorities knew every taxi trip that was taken for a whole year, where it began, where it ended, what time it started, what time it ended. So there's an enormous, enormous database of, of trips showing the, the patterns of demand in New York city. And so we use that data in, um, our analysis of what could you do if you scheduled the cars optimally, if you dispatched them in the best way, and found that you could get by with about 40% fewer cars than we currently use um, if we did it in the smartest way. That would mean 40% less you know, emissions, less congestion. Um, there'd be a lot of advantages to doing it the mathematically best way. So we'll see. I mean, these ideas do have already been picked up by Uber and Lyft, or not this actual idea, but we had done an earlier paper about um, if people would share taxis, you know, like what if you were willing to have someone else in the car with you who was a stranger, mm-hmm. how much, how many fewer cars could we get by with if we did ride oh, share? Yeah. And now, of course, we have ride sharing. We have Uber Pool. Right. And they were working on algorithms that, that were very much informed um, by the kind of work that we were doing. I should say these were with... Um, collaborators at MIT in a group called the Sensible City Lab. Oh. So, yeah, so that's where that work came from. And they, it was really their work. I, I only played a minor part in it. Oh, I see. One thing I think about mentioning cars is uh, the first thing I thought of when I was looking in your book is I think about it when I'm braking in a car that uh, braking is to the squared power of the speed so that if I'm braking at 70 miles an hour, it's like 49 times the amount required at one mile an hour, or it's like double the amount, let's say at um, 50 miles an hour, even though they're not that far apart, so that the highest braking amount is at the higher speeds. 
That's interesting. I didn't know that. That's an interesting principle. So mm-hmm. You're saying the force required goes like the square of the velocity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's interesting, huh? And that was the first thing I was thinking about. Um, and I saw it in your you had the Usain Bolt uh, speed thing. It made me think of that. And so I've noticed that when I uh, break, I mean, I manage it. It's not a big deal. Obviously, brakes are strong these days for every car. But the most intensity for brakes is at like from 70 to 60 is going from a 49 to a 36. So 13 whatever units versus going from 30 to 20 is from a 9 to a 4. So it's just five units of... Uh-huh. Yeah. That's interesting. I've never really thought about that. I'll have to try that out on a, an empty road. <laughs> I started thinking about that. The MB squared over yeah, R, I think. Yeah, nice. So I can see where it could come from, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like to think about things like that. And uh, I feel like it makes life efficient to see things in this. What the do same. you do when you're not doing podcasts? Oh, I have a... Um, well, uh, well I, I have a lot of students in... I, I tutor a lot of students in science and math and then also oh. some uh, essays like uh, writing like uh nice. projects that's uh that's a lot of it and then other side, little side things but that's uh, a big part is the tutoring that i do yeah i like math and science do your listeners know this have you revealed this before uh yes in some that's funny you mentioned that but i i don't mention that much that's a good point uh, i think i have um i always mention my interest in science a lot of the books i have read are uh in neuroscience category like uh-huh. Behave by Robert Sapolsky or Oh yeah, nice. Um Scale by Jeffrey West was kind of like about cities and small world networks. I like that cuz it connects to what you're describing. A lot of the you have covered many different topics similar to like in the Santa Fe Institute or the I forgot the other one, but they they combine multiple fields. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm no, of... I'm, I was at one time an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. Oh. And um, certainly know and admire Jeffrey West. I, I never met uh, Robert Sapolsky, but he's pretty hilarious. I've seen him <laughs> on TV. Did, he's very funny. Yeah, he's he's a joker. Like some people have compared him to a comedian. Mm-hmm. He has that kind of, yeah, a spirit like that. And then uh, it was one of the first uh, books that I took heavy notes on uh, because it was like a seminal book, and I, I like that and it, about human behavior. I'm I'm always focused on uh, people is always my main focus. So I like to understand uh, people and social dynamics. Yeah, uh-huh. but yes, and so I like. Uh, te- oh, speaking of teaching, also, um, when did you realize? At what age did you realize you like to teach others? Because not everybody, a lot of people don't do that. True, that's true. Many people don't. I. I mean, a lot of people who become professors do it because they're interested in research and mm-hmm. puzzles about the universe or creative puzzles about, you know, if they're writers or philosophers, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly always like teaching a lot. I, I Even as a little kid, I'd say, you know, teenager, maybe even before 10 or 11 years old, if, if I learned something that I thought was interesting or cool or whatever I would have called it at that <laughs> age. <laughs> I would call it neat. cool too, yeah. Yeah, neat, really cool, neat, I don't know. Uh-huh. Whatever, if I found something I liked, I would want to explain it to somebody, right. which was teaching. And usually there wasn't anyone around who would listen because my friends didn't want me <laughs> right. lecturing to them. I don't blame them. Mm-hmm. So um, so for a long time, I was a teacher with nobody to teach. But mm. I, I had one high school teacher who was actually my calculus teacher who was a very nice, humble person. He was good at calculus, but he um, somehow revered his students. And so he would talk to us about his former students that were the best in his class. And, and he'd 
make them sound like they were heroes, you know, that they had solved this or that problem and how amazing it was. Yeah, it was really nice. And it made us all feel like, wow, those kids must have been so smart. And I want, I hope he'll talk about me someday, Mm -hmm. the teacher, you know. So he, after I graduated from high school, I would sometimes write letters to him. Mr. Joffrey was the guy's name. (laughs) He would, um, he'd ask me math problems that he didn't know how to solve that had come up in his classes that his best students were asking. And then I would write some very careful answers back to him and careful in the sense that I knew what he knew and I knew what he didn't know. And so I could, I write it at a level where he could really use it. And, um, mm-hmm. that was, it was tremendous fun for me. I loved being it because he was, like I say, before I had any students, he was my first student. And it was this interesting reversal where my teacher became my student. I was only in college at that point. Right. Yeah. So it was really kind of him to let me do that. And he was very appreciative of it. And, we ended up writing to each other for about 35 years for the whole of his end of his career and the beginning of my career. And um, it's a story that I told in a different book. We didn't talk about this, but I, I wrote a book once called The Calculus of Friendship. Mm-hmm. It's the story of my relationship with Mr. Joffrey over those 35 years as told through the letters that we wrote to each other over that time. Um, the, the point of it being that we were just mainly writing about math problems. But at one point, my wife said to me, you know, gee, that's amazing. You must know him so well. You've been writing to him for 35 years. And then I realized, wow, I don't actually know him very well because we <laughs> never talk about anything but math. Mm-hmm. That seemed kind of strange. Like, how could this be such a close and important person in my life? And we never talked about anything real. We just in this fairy tale, imaginary world of math problems. Mm-hmm. So it, it became a kind of emotional book about growing up and about cherishing people in your life who are important. In, and uh, meanwhile, you know, during those years, many things happened. He had a son who died, which was horrible tragedy for him. And mm. I, things happened to me. And we really didn't talk about any of it. But eventually we felt like it's almost like what you brought up earlier. Right. With things under the rug. You know, at some point this has to come out. Uh-huh. And so eventually by the end of the book, it does in the end of our you know, I mean, we're, he's still alive. I should, I don't want to give the right. impression he's gone. He's an old, old man now, um, about 90 years old, oh. but he's, as far as I know, still alive. We haven't been in touch recently, but I should get back in touch with him. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, just for the listeners, that book came out in 2009. Some other books written by this wonderful author are Nonlinear Dynamics and Chaos in 1994. I like the concept of chaos and entropy. Sync in 2003 about synchronization which connects with uh, the, the the small world networks and how they have better synchronizing and then the joy of x in 2012 which i am assuming is about algebra i'm not sure <laughs> it's about all of math it does sound like it's about algebra but it's really about all of math and it's it's just starting at kindergarten or even preschool mm. and then going up to graduate school what are the big ideas in math and why should anyone care about them and where do they occur in our real life? So for anyone who is listening and has a maybe a child in middle school or elementary school or high school, or maybe you're the parent and you would like to understand math a little better, mm-hmm. um, that book is same. Joy of X is supposed to help you with that. You could also check out some of the columns. I, they were originally columns in the New York Times. So oh. if you have a subscription or if you haven't used up your 10 free ones this <laughs> month, you could look up some of those old articles. Um, just mm-hmm. look for Strogatz in the New York Times. You'll see them pop right up. Mm-hmm. One thing you had mentioned about uh, teaching, I've thought about this uh, with one 
recent students, but I now relate with their personality. Like one is more creative and I get along. That's more my style. So we more variation and uh, it's a little less focused, but also it's a bit more fun. And then sometimes there's students that's more about getting the results done and competency and less about variety. Do you ever match your students' personality in some way? Hmm. I, that's a really interesting question. Um, I do, I have found that, so for me, just to be clear, but most also, of the students are, are PhD students. Right. Oh. You know, at this point, I do teach undergraduates mm-hmm. and, and give have lectures, but I often don't get to know them very well. It's just the nature of my right. career that as a professor at Cornell, I spend a lot of time working with students getting their PhD and mm-hmm. helping guide them to that work. So I do know those people very well. And I've had various types, some people who are really quiet and shy, some people who are very outgoing and bubbly and men and women, you know, all kinds of different variety, people from other countries, some some Americans. Um, I do find that I have to like them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't I mean there are a lot of kinds of people that I can get along with. Right. But if I don't feel some chemistry. Right. And, and likewise, I think if they don't feel it for me. Right. It's both sides. That, yeah, it doesn't really work. It's It's a very intimate relationship it goes on for five six years sometimes right oh and you better be able to get along and and, and enjoy being in that person's company or it's not going to be really work very well this is a key point yes yeah now two things i always like to uh close out on is one of them is uh what are some upcoming goals for this uh the rest of 2019 Mm. well um obviously the book just came out but yeah uh, yes, that's true. It's right. So Infinite Powers has just come out a week ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that people will find it interesting and take a look at it and read it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but really, what, what I have next on my horizon is to start learning to do what you're doing right now. Oh. I would like to try to do a podcast of my own. This is wonderful. Yeah, so we'll see. Uh, that's um, It seems to be in the works. There's a magazine, an online magazine called Quanta. Mm-hmm. Um, Quanta does writing about mostly theoretical parts of science and math, some computer science, some biology. Mm-hmm. So so Quanta wants to start a podcast, and they've asked me to be the host. Right. Um, but So we're, we're starting to gear up to do that and figure out who to interview, and maybe I'll get a little trained. I don't know if I'll just learn on the job or what, but you know how to interview. Right. I feel like you have all that is – Good for a podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. How did you? What did you teach yourself? Did uh, you learn skills of asking questions or listening or anything, or just instinct? I, well, I've always liked uh, people. Uh, short summary: I used to have a blog in two thousand eight, nine, ten, eleven. I wrote a lot of uh, like personal development articles on confidence and boldness and relationships and people. Uh, maybe like three hundred articles. I did some guest posts on other people's sites. So I always like connecting with people with concepts. That's been a thing a long time. And yep. then uh, I always reach out to people socially in public. I probably talk to more people in Los Angeles County than almost anybody that exists. <laughs> uh, I, unless they're like maybe a celebrity that met them quickly. But other than that, and then um, I always like to, I really connect with the other individuals who are also putting out thoughts, which is a very small category of people I've noticed. Um, the other, yeah, people who are, um, thinking a lot, not just critically thinking, also creative and brainstorming, and then, okay. <laughs> but also putting it out to which is a subcategory that's uh, it's like an outgoing nature of that, and then um, 
I just have always liked doing it. So, mm-hmm. and then I notice also, such as yourself, a professor, you have that. So it would be very uh, nice to have that on like a show, for example. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, all right. So stay tuned. I mean, maybe I'll be on in a year or so. Mm-hmm. And then that would be wonderful. Uh, and then the last thing is, what is one message you would have to all people of the earth? Something that uh, represents what you would like to put out to people. Like Ooh. a sentence. It's always a tough one. This one is okay. always difficult. Um, be, try to get good at putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Oh, empathy. Try to, try to see the world from the perspective of another person. Be empathetic. Because I think all of us will be a lot kinder and probably have a more interesting life if we can see things through someone else's eyes. This is wonderful. Yes, with their perspective. This yeah. is great. I want to thank you for having been on episode 216 of the show and bringing all this wonderful knowledge and material here and in your works. Thank you. Now, let me think about that for one second. 216. Mm-hmm. That's yes. a very mathematical number, isn't it? It sure is. Six to the third for all the people uh-huh. that are not thinking about that. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's a good Thanks. point. How did you know that? Uh, because I, I'm always, well, I liked math since I was little. I was always very good at it. And then also I work with uh, math students at times across the years as a, in tutoring. And so that's one of the, I have a that's lot a of number. numbers yeah, memorized. Now, when you get to episode 256, that's a really good <laughs> Four to the fourth is yeah, here. That's this a is, beautiful number. Right. The, none of my other guests have really mentioned any of the, that's a great point, the actual <laughs> number. Yes. And then, all right, Armin, this was fun. Thank you. Wonderful. Glad to have you on. And we are out.